Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for a very unusual type of Thursday episode. Uh, You already heard us this week talking about the Oscar nominations. Um, Later in the episode, you'll hear David and Rebecca and Richard breaking down the highlights from Sundance this year, which is still going on. Uh, But right now, I'm here for one more bonus segment about this year's Oscar nominations. And joining me is a returning guest, dear friend, Oscar nerd, uh, Joe Reed. Hello, Joe Reed. Hi, Katie. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, We are recording this not as long after the Oscar nominations announcement as you are hearing this. So I'm still kind of... um, I don't know, buzzing and yes. tired from uh, <laughs> from doing all of this. Um, so, Joe, we're not just going to talk vaguely about the nominations, although we can, because you've been crunching some numbers for us just about kind of the stats and the records that were broken this year. Um, but before we get into that, I did just want to ask you in generally, like, good nominations, bad nominations? How are you feeling today? I'm usually pretty easy to please with this kind of thing. There's always going to be frustrating snubs. There's always going to be movies and performances that you wish have been nominated, and that's definitely the case this year. But looking at this uh, list of nominees, I stopped to cheer, like, several times. I was so happy that Brian Tyree Henry got nominated for Causeway. I was so happy that Paul Mescal got nominated for After Sun, Stephanie Hsu for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Like, those were big. I was very relieved that Michelle Williams got the Fableman's nomination, because I thought that was maybe not going to happen. And then Mm -hmm. Judd Hirsch sort of comes back around after being, you know, really shaky through most of awards season after I had, like, made the bold claim along with a lot of people who made the bold claim after watching that first screening of The Fablemans. I was like, Hirsch is in. Yeah, because you were in the room in Toronto where he got, like, the standing ovation mid-movie, He got the mid-movie applause break, which I was like, I know how that game is played. And then, (laughs) and... And this makes it makes sense that the Oscar voters would would go for that performance too. So like I'm I'm glad that 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 one paid off. But yeah, I think it's I think it's a good lineup. And my first big sort of statty thing, like the very the sort of top line stat that I go to for this year that kind of explains why I do and why I am pretty happy with this set of nominations is it's 16 first-time acting nominees out of 20. I'm obsessed. Like, that was one of the first stats that some, like, people were highlighting right afterward. And you almost, like, can't believe that number because it just feels like way too many people. It's shocking. It's only Kate Blanchett, Judd Hirsch, Michelle Williams, and Angela Bassett, who had been ever nominated for Oscars before. And in the case of Angela Bassett and Judd Hirsch, it's been, like, multiple decades since they had last been nominated. So this is a very, very fresh field of nominees, which is very exciting. And you imagine this means more to them. You know what I mean? I'm sure every Oscar nomination means something to somebody. But like, if it's your seventh or eighth nomination, it's not going to mean as much as if you're Colin Farrell getting his first act, you know, first ever Oscar nomination. Don't say that to to Kate Blanchett. It all means so much to everybody, obviously. Uh, uh, here's a here's an off the dome stat for you. Are any of the acting nominees born after the last time Angela Bassett was nominated in what, like 1993? Well, 
Let's see. I'll click the little Wikipedia tab for Stephanie Hsu. Stephanie Hsu. Barry Keoghan is right around the time. Stephanie Hsu would be the other one. Yeah. Stephanie Hsu was born in 1990. Uh, so okay. that was before, but like too young. Barry Keoghan's to... 1992. Oh, so close. So close. <laughs> close he was, enough. He was still toddling around. Both of them were still toddling around when uh, Angela Bassett was strutting that stage as Tina Turner. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, so we can just dive in. There's a piece that everyone can read with you kind of breaking down these stats. But I think another thing you brought up that makes this list so satisfying is the range of when these films were released, which is, you know, doesn't sound like a stat that really matters. But I think it says a lot about the breadth of titles we're talking about in Best Picture in particular. Yeah, totally. This is the most... I used the term calendar diverse, and I tried to find, like, a better term for it because it seems like you're sort of making light of diversity, and they don't want to do that. Or you're, like, inventing a new, like, category of (laughs) of people. Right. So these 10 Best Picture nominees were released in six different calendar months, which is a marked difference from especially, like, the Oscar nominations for Best Picture are usually pretty weighted towards the end of the calendar year, but, like, Even given that, the last few years have been pretty heavily weighted towards November, December, uh, that one year, the the first pandemic year, there was a few February releases, but like the next February. Um, So this was, I'm trying to get them in order. Everything Everywhere All at Once released in March. Top Gun Maverick released in May. Elvis released in June. And then... Several, there were four releases in October, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, Tar, All Quiet on the Western Front, Banshee's Imminent Sharon, and Triangle of Sadness. Yes. Um, and then a November release, only one November release, and that's that's a big change from normal. Uh, that's the Fablemans. And then a couple very late, late entries in Avatar and Women Talking. But that is a a pretty satisfying spread, I would think. And it and it reflects the fact that, like, even if this wouldn't be the 10 movies that I would have nominated for Best Picture, mm-hmm. it still is a very satisfying field in terms of covering a lot of bases. There's big movies. I feel like this the story this year, which I've always been talking about, is the maximalist movies. You and I have talked about this yep. off mic yep. and whatever. Um, but this is a this is a good spread of you've got those maximalist movies, but you've also got, you know, something like Women Talking, something like The Fablemans, which is, you know, in, in contrast to these big action movies of, you know, Avatar and Top Gun. You've got Banshees of Inisherin, which is, you know, very sort of small and geographically remote. But it's, it's movies that... I saw in theaters all across the calendar, and it makes it feel more mm-hmm. like this is the Oscars that is reflecting the year in film. And that's what I want out of the Oscars. This is number crunching for later on, but if everything, everywhere, all at once wins Best Picture, as many of us think it will, will it be the earliest released winner since Silence of the Lambs? Or is there a spring movie I'm forgetting? Um, feels possible. <laughs> it does feel possible. It's earlier than The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker was a June release. right. Um, that does feel right, actually. Obviously, the famous February uh, release to win Best Picture was Silence of the Lambs, but that was way, way back in 1991. We're so old, Katie. Um, I know, I know. Yeah, But yeah, that sounds right. Gladiator was a spring movie, too, but I think maybe a little bit later in the spring. Yeah, Gladiator, I'm pretty sure, was May. I would, yeah. I would uh, bet on that. Probably the, it has to be the first South by Southwest premiere to win Best Picture at the, at the very least. Yeah, good for that. What else? What other stats kind of blew your mind as you went down this list? Well, uh, sort of going back to that first-time nominee thing, the Best Actor category 
five first-time nominees. Uh, one year after last year, all five nominees were previous nominees, which hadn't happened since 1981. This time, it's all five first-time nominees, which hadn't happened since the seventh Academy Awards in 1935, <laughs> which really, really tells you something. Really, really tells you how much Hollywood likes going back to actors who they know and yeah. are familiar with. Uh, that year, there were only three nominees for Best Actor. Clark Gable won for It Happened One Night. It was his very first nomination. Very well-deserved. William Powell got his very first nomination for The Thin Man, playing Nick Charles in The Thin Man. And then Frank Morgan, who is best known to everybody as the wizard from The Wizard of Oz, uh, was nominated for a movie called The Affairs of Cellini. Let's watch it. Let's dig that one up. Viewing party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you found a bunch of fun Kate Blanchett stats, too. I mean, she she and Lydia Tarr together have been such a fun uh, story of the season. She's been nominated. This is her eighth nomination? Her eighth nomination ties her with Judy Dench, Geraldine Page, and Glenn Close for fourth all-time among actresses, trailing only Meryl Streep, who has 21, and it's going to be, you know, a while until anybody <laughs> threatens that. Uh, Catherine Hepburn has 12, Betty Davis has 10, so Kate's sort of closing in on uh, at least Betty. My favorite stat, she's also, by the way, the only acting nominee this year who has won before, which uh, is another sort of stat that goes back. That is wild. I wonder, yeah, did you figure out the last time that happened? Yeah, so previous to that, 1997. Diane Keaton was the only previous winner among those Oscar nominees when she was nominated for Marvin's Room, which is a while ago. Uh, maybe yeah. People maybe don't even remember the movie Marvin's Room. Uh, I've never seen, have you ever seen Marvin's Room? I don't think I have. I need to. There's an asterisk around 2004 because Hilary Swank and Clint Eastwood were both nominated for Million Dollar Baby. And they're both previous winners, but Clint Eastwood's a previous directing winner. So you can sort of, you know... Does that count? Does that not count? But anyway. Yeah, he's like Robert Redford, right? Where his only uh, uh, Oscars, not for acting. Yeah. You get also a lot of um, double nominees in the supporting categories, which is interesting this year. You have double nominees in both supporting categories, which hasn't happened since 1991. So this year we got Brendan Gleeson and Barry Keoghan for The Banshees of Sharon and... Stephanie Hsu and Jamie Lee Curtis in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The last time that happened in both supporting categories in the same year was uh, 1970. I guess the Oscar year would have been 1972, the 1971 films. Uh, the Last Picture Show did it in both. Like, The wow. Last Picture Show had double nominees in both categories, which is pretty impressive. I mean, you also pointed out that it's a six-year streak of double nominees in at least one supporting category, and it like just wasn't that common before that. What, do you think there's an explanation for why it's suddenly happening? Is it just Martin McDonough and his power? It might be. Martin McDonough has now directed, or, yeah, directed, um, what is it, what did I say, seven acting nominees in his last two films, three for Three Billboards and now four for... Banshees of Inisherin, so I can imagine every actor in Hollywood is going to be banging down his door trying to yeah. get into his next movie. Yep. Um, I don't know what that says. Whether that's there, I do sort of tend to sort of anecdotally feel like there is a narrowing of what movies are in contention for Oscars, and I don't know whether that's a function of the calendar or what. Yeah, like you're someone who tries to watch all the nominees, and I feel like you've noticed it like every year, maybe not always shrinking, but there's just fewer titles total that you have to catch up on. Yeah, this year feels a little bit like an outsider in that where like, you know, Living is nominated in a couple categories and After Sun and 
to Leslie now all of a sudden yes. goes on everybody's list. Uh, speaking if they of want titular to be a completist, roles. Speaking of titular roles. <laughs> uh, but it does still feel like the, the preponderance of, although I will say, looking through the years at this, double nominees are more in supporting categories especially, are more common than you think if you go okay. through the years. Like it it it's it seems like it's very rare, but it's it's not. So that's that was interest an interesting thing I found. Um talking about people who with a ton of nominations, uh John Williams got his fifty-third. Um, which, you know, I mean we're we're of the John Williams generation and I still think that stat kind of boggles my mind every time I see it. Um you seem to think that he can't beat Walt Disney's record of fifty nine. Well, not if he keeps up this retirement talk that he's talking about. Then <laughs> I mean, he, he, he's, keeps, he's, he keeps taking it back, though, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't trust any retirement announcements. I'm, I've learned enough <laughs> from the Soderberghs of the world to know that uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to trust that. But he's six He's six behind Walt Disney. Well, there was a few sort of untouchable Oscar records. I mentioned that, like, Meryl's 21 acting nominations, at the very least, isn't going to be approached anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Edith Head's... Costume design nominations. She's at 35. The next closest is at 16. So, like, Edith Head's sitting pretty. That is so... I mean, I think I knew that Edith Head was, like, the goat in this category. But, like... Yeah. And I looked it up, too. She she was very rarely double nominated. This is just her, like, getting nominated, like, every year for 30 years, basically. Worked. Worked and worked <laughs> and worked. But, yeah, so that Walt Disney mark of 59 total Oscar nominations always has seemed like, well, nobody's ever going to get that. Walt Disney, you know, was you know, president of his own fiefdom or whatever sure. in, in Hollywood. And yet, it's like if John, Kevin fact, Feige was like churning out Oscar nominees. Right. The fact that John Williams is even within six, to me, is is astounding. It's really, really amazing. So, yeah. And as we've been discussing, he's been nominated for original song five times. I'd love for yeah. him to get back in that category one last time. I don't know, I know. what we'd have to do to do that. Speaking of original song, Katie. Mm, our friend Diane. Diane's back. Diane said, you can give me an honorary Oscar if you want to, and I'll be happy about it. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop churning out Oscar-nominated songs. So, Did you predict her? I assume you did. I didn't do official predictions, and I don't know whether I would have, just because I thought original song was so stacked this year. You had Gaga and Rihanna, who both got nominated. You had Taylor Swift, who didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh LCD Sound System, who didn't, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I would have really liked that nomination for White Noise. And I was maybe holding out a candle for Rita Wilson to get the A Man Called Otto nomination. For, well, A Man Called Otto is like a stealth January box office hit, so I guess they can comfort themselves with that. Yeah, good news somewhere. But uh, yeah, Diane Warren is the queen, especially lately, of getting nominated for songs from movies that you didn't know existed until the Oscar nominations were announced. I'm going to track down, tell it like a woman and watch that movie now. And I didn't know until today. It's like an omnibus film with a bunch of different like women directing, including Taraji P. Henson. It sounds more interesting than I had assumed. Could have knocked me over with a feather after (laughs) learning all that. So yes, absolutely. Um, wait, so speaking of uh, wives of people who are also nominated for Oscars on the Rita Wilson topic, uh, Catherine Martin got three Oscar nominations. I didn't realize she was a producer of Elvis until we were recorded our Tuesday episode. Yeah. Um, but you kind of ran the stats like she has a very strong nomination to win record here. Catherine Martin hasn't missed since Strictly Ballroom, which was <laughs> 1993, I want to say, like maybe even earlier than that. Around the last time Angela Bassett got nominated, I guess. Basically, Catherine Martin has been nominated for every, like she only really works on Baz Luhrmann movies and she's got nominated every single time. Romeo and Juliet, 
Moulin Rouge, Australia. Like nothing got nominated for Australia. Catherine Martin did. Great Gatsby. Uh, and now Elvis. And she's she is she's the the inverse of Baz Luhrmann in that. Catherine Martin never misses, and Baz Luhrmann keeps getting close, keeps, you know, now this is his second Best Picture nomination with Elvis. Still no director nomination. He joins that sort of ignominious list with Frank Darabont and Lawrence Kasdan and uh, our beloved Joe Wright, who multiple Best Picture nominees with no Best Director nominations to show for it. I thought this might have been the year. I did too. I really did. Yeah. Yeah. Director kind of took us by surprise. Yeah. Um, I think that I was expecting all the Beauty and the Bloodshed to get a nomination in here, which it did for Laura Poitras. She has won in this category before, but I didn't realize what kind of hit, like uh, company she'd be in if she won here. Yeah, d- uh, documentary feature tends to not repeat winners very often. So if uh, all the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is like in many ways the most acclaimed documentary of the year, if that does actually end up winning the documentary feature Oscar, it would be the second for Laura Poitras after Citizen Four, which was. 2014, I want to say. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, Would be the first time that a director has gotten a second, a repeat documentary feature Oscar since Barbara Koppel did it in 1990. So I had no idea that the documentary had so few repeat winners. Yeah, I think, I mean, it does make sense in that you imagine that among the greater sort of Oscar uh, voting body, they, they vote for stories, right? They vote for subject matter in documentary, maybe more so than they do for filmmakers necessarily. So, so yeah, Barbara Koppel first won for Harlan County, USA in 1976. And then in 1990, won for a film called American Dream, which was, I mean, that's the Dances with Wolves year, right? So like, again, a very, very long time ago, this just doesn't really happen in documentary. So we'll see if Laura Poitras can pull that off. I think if anything can, all the all the beauty and the bloodshed has been so well received this year that uh yeah. I imagine it's it's if not the favorite then like among the favorites to win that one this year. Yeah. Um let's jump back to the best director category. Um I want to talk about some Spielberg stuff, but then the Daniels just have this interesting uh stat as a directing duo. It makes it not five male nominees, but six male nominees. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> it's and it's not just them and the Coens either, which I think is what I would have assumed. Yeah, the two most recent director pairs to be nominated as a unit uh, were the Coens for True Grit, and, uh, True Grit in 2011, No Country for Old Men in 2007. The only other times before that happened, it was West Side Story, which uh, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins won Best Director. And then Heaven Can Wait in 1979, Warren Beatty and Buck Henry were nominated for that together. So this is... A rarity. Yeah, my understanding is that for like it used, it used to be really hard to get considered as a directing duo by the DGA or the or the Oscars. Like Joel Cohen right. was nominated solo at least once. Um, yeah. Oh, so yeah, I yeah. Wa- and I know that Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins, like Jerome Robbins, kind of handled the dancing and the choreography. Um, so they kind of split it up. I don't know what the deal with um, Heaven Can Wait was. I'd, I'd be interested to to learn that story of how they got that joint credit. It feels like maybe. Hollywood's a little bit less uptight about that now, or <laughs> or maybe there's just more movies now, so more are breaking through on just like a volume basis. So yeah, yeah. Um, 
perhaps that. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Spielberg because like so many of these superlatives and firsts and whatnot have to do with Spielberg. Um, now tied with Martin Scorsese for second most best director nominations all time. They both have, uh, they each have nine. William Wyler is still king of that mountain. He's got 12 total nominations. So, Ooh, do you think anyone's I'm beating not- Wyler? I'm not betting against Spielberg in that either. His No, I'm not either. His success rate's been pretty good, so I'll take That's him there. That's true. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese, you know, like, both of those guys seem to, like, plan to live forever and keep making movies, so, which suits exactly. me just fine. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, Killers of the Flower Moon before we know it, so. I know, I know. God, well, the, save that for our year-ahead Oscar Rages episode. I absolutely episode. am, yes. <laughs> around the bend. Yeah. Um, you're also going to be back with um, your This Had Oscar Buzz co-host, Chris File. We're going to do our 2003 Oscars flashback, or 2002 Oscars, depending on how you want to um Right. It's the hours Oscars. Um, But I I don't want to steal the glory of your um, class of 2022, this hot Oscar episode, because I know you guys will get into that. But anything that didn't make the cut that you are uh, either excited to cover or mad to cover from this year's class? I mean, a lot of movies that I really loved ended up getting blanked. I'm, I'm so in that way, I'm excited to talk about them. I'm excited to talk about Nope. I'm excited to talk about The Woman King. Uh, I'm excited to talk about She Said. Those are all movies that I really, really liked this year. Yeah. Um, we'll also be doing movies like White Noise, I imagine, will be Class of 22, uh, The Inspection, and Till, and there was quite a few, actually. My Policeman is the one I keep thinking about. It feels like a, a custom-built This Had Oscar Buzz episode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of like every year on this day where like there's all these snubs that we're just kind of furious about. But maybe what's kind of great about your podcast is that they live on in some way. Like they were part of this conversation at some point, even if they're not on this list. It's it's an optimistic way to think about it. That's the thing. That's, you know, I tend to look at the Oscars in a big picture kind of a way, which is why I maybe get less incensed about things like snubs because – I don't know. There's just it's it's a it's a whole ecosystem, and you can't really ever hope to control a whole ecosystem. So it's an unwieldy beast, and that's to me part of the charm for it. And sometimes you hit, and sometimes you miss when you should have hit, and that's just sort of that's how it goes. Yeah. Okay, as promised, Richard's been at Sundance all week, and David and Rebecca have been catching up on some titles at home on the Sundance virtual platform. So let's hear from them about what the standouts of this year's Sundance have been. So, Rebecca and David, Sundance happened, or I guess it's technically still happening. I'm still in Utah, which is why my audio is not sounding as good as it normally does. Um, you both watched remotely. I'm curious, how was that experience? Was it? Did it feel like a full festival to you guys? I mean, I will always miss the experience of discovering a movie in a in the theater and uh, at Sundance. But I got to say, this viewing system has worked really, really well, at least on my end. I've had no technical problems. I feel like the way you can access films the next day has been pretty great because I'll just kind of see what you've reviewed, Richard, or read what people are raving about on Twitter and then just check out, you know, what catches my attention. Yeah, we definitely have the best... Uh... <laughs> set up in terms of like waiting for the hype to roll in and then we can just unlock the movies that seem most worth watching because there is always a ton at Sundance. Um, And I've had the same experience. I think especially, you know, in our jobs, we watch a lot of unfinished screeners and blurry screeners. And so having an app with new movies that are 
you know, have no issues that are finished is a really lovely experience. And um, yeah, I've had a great time. I've had a great Sundance. Except the big lauded hit of the festival yes, wasn't online. Except, <laughs> except the one movie yeah. that we, yeah. Uh, so that movie was uh, Celine Song's Past Lives, which um, for, for I, I'm not, I think it might have something to do with the fact that it's going to be in competition in Berlin. Um, that it didn't, um, it wasn't available online to anybody, um, either the public or press. So I was able to see that here, and it's incredible. Uh, it's Greta Lee uh, starring in this movie about like immigration and lost love or lost friendship, and um, it just sort of snuck up on the festival and then took it by storm. It shouldn't have been that much of a surprise. Celine Song is this lauded playwright. The movie was from A24. Like it had a lot of pedigree to it. Um, that, I mean, I guess that's why I put it in my schedule. So I guess I think that was the one big thing that um, the digital viewers lost out on. But pretty much everything else, I think, was available to you guys. Um, so I'm curious, like, talking about some of the big titles, like, is Jonathan Majors going to get an Oscar nomination for Magazine Dreams? I feel like it depends on who picks it up, because I think as of this recording, at least, it is still looking for a distributor. Um, I thought he was extraordinary in this movie. It definitely has shades of Taxi Driver, and the experience of watching it reminded me of the experience of watching Joker, uh, which I say with mixed mixed feelings. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty mixed on the movie overall, but he is so undeniable, and the combination of this incredibly difficult character study uh, that he pulls off, and that just sheer physicality of the performance he's playing. Um, a bodybuilder who is trying to break through in a way that he is just not able. And, you know, the film explores the sort of societal pressures um, that go around that and his own social awkwardness and how this has informed where he is uh, as a person, and which is not in a great place. Um, it's just, I could not stop watching him. Even at the points where I really wanted to turn the movie off, I could not stop watching him. So I do hope that whoever picks up the movie handles that with the kind of care that um, it deserves and gets a real shot at um, some awards traction. Yeah, I feel like it definitely deserves to be in that best actor conversation a year from now. But it, it yeah, as David's pointing out, still needs a distributor. I just I just feel like Jonathan Majors just elevates every single film yeah. he's in. He really works with a lot of, um, you know, first time or up and coming directors. And I think I just can't believe what he's able to deliver especially this performance. I mean, that role seems nearly impossible to, to do right. And you just never know what he's going to do in any scene. And every decision just feels so right that, you know, I, as hard of a film as it is to watch, I really hope people check it out when it is finally released wide. Yeah. I mean, the, the hard to watch factor is, is a big one with that movie. Like at the premiere screening, which, you know, is generally a pretty supportive crowd. I mean, not all 1,200 people are going to be on board with you, but, like, people are pretty dialed in usually. There were so many walkouts. And mm. um, from my vantage point on House Right, you know, toward the back on the aisle, that's where you can always find me in row R um, <laughs> at the Eccles. Because um, I'm always, like, the second person in line because I'm crazy. But um, And that, I thought, was, you know, both not a good sign for the movie, but also maybe a good sign, like it, because it's doing something intense and sort of undeniable that some people were just like, ugh, I, I can't deal with this. And I wonder how that will fare, you know, well, in terms of who buys it, but also like when it's actually out in the world and people are going to see it, like is Jonathan Majors' performance enough of a sell or, or a, you know, whatever to 
to keep people invested or will the kind of overwhelming tension and, oh God, I can't believe it's going to go there-ness of the movie put people off. And then the thing about the movie is, and this is, I don't think really spoiling it, like it kind of doesn't go there in the way that you think it's going to, um, which maybe kind of redeems it in the end. But um, I'm definitely curious. I have no idea who's going to buy that movie or who should buy that movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even see whether it would be a better theatrical or streaming play. Like, it's a, it's it's in its own kind of universe a little bit in terms of what it asks of a, a viewer, especially, like, in the current art house market. It's a, it's a challenging sell, I think. Yeah. One of the big sells here was uh, Fair Play, Chloe Domont's film. Um, it went to Netflix, I think, for $20 million. And that was another movie that, like, kind of a little bit like Past Lives – snuck up on you. It sounded interesting on the program. It featured, you know, an actress from Bridgerton uh, and an, an Alden Ironreich who had been kind of in the weeds career-wise. So it wasn't like a big star vehicle, but it was an object of curiosity. And then it, at the premiere in Park City, really blew the roof off the library. You know, people were really, in, it's a sexy, grim thriller about the gender wars and high finance business. And, and you know, it was for sale. And the big question was, is there a theatrical life for this movie? And then ultimately the answer was pretty much no because Netflix bought it. <laughs> but I think maybe for a movie of that scale, that's a good home for it. Did either of you check out Fair Play? I think we both loved it, right? Yeah, I loved it a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely a movie like Promising a Young Woman, which was here a couple years ago, right before the pandemic uh, really started. It's about certain political issues in terms of like women in the workplace or male entitlement and aggression and all that stuff. But I think compared to Promising Young Woman, this movie is, I think, refreshingly subtler. It's mm-hmm. not b- bonking you over the head that, like, this is a movie about, like, gender politics as they are in the 2020s. Um, it's instead, foremost, a entertaining thriller that then has these sort of issue, um, these issues baked in underneath. Yeah, I think the last turn of the movie is the only part where you could have some debate over how much you believe these characters, but otherwise every facial expression, uh, every slight turn in the dynamics of their relationship, uh, I was completely sold on. And um, it just gets the fundamentals right. The pacing's great. Uh, the performances by Phoebe Dynavor and Alan Herringreich are so good. And it's just a ton of fun to watch. It's got a lot to chew on. Uh, it, it leaves you very satisfied. I think it's a really good Netflix movie. Uh, I think a ton of people will watch it. Uh, the Phoebe Dynavor has that Bridgerton factor, uh, that audience baked in. The, the thing about Phoebe Dynavor in this movie is, I mean, she's an actor who, for me, I've always liked, but I never fully, I don't want to say never fully got her, but, you know, in, in Younger, which was, I think, the first time I saw her, she's kind of a third-wheel love interest who's cast aside, and then in... Um, Bridgerton, it was the Reggae Jean Page show so thoroughly that this was really exciting for me to see her take charge of a movie. The movie really ends on this powerful scene for her character um, that she just completely owns. And I get her now, and I'm really excited to see her in pretty much everything after seeing this. It's also such an exciting debut for the writer-director, Chloe DeMont, yeah. because it's like, this is what you dream of with Sundance, a huge debut there, a huge deal, and then hopefully she gets you know opportunities to do a, a bigger budget project or something else, whatever she wants to do. So I'm excited to see what she does next, because she definitely proved that she has a, a really strong talent as a director. Well, it was a it was a really interesting festival this year for uh, female directors in that, like, when I made my schedule, 
I wasn't thinking of it this way, but then I was looking back at what I've seen here and it's like, I've only seen like three movies made by men. <laughs> you know, mm. I think a lo- most of the biggest films that were buzzed about here were made by women. And, you know, DeMont is, is certainly one of them, Celine Song. Um, so so that's been exciting. And yeah, and fair play for Phoebe Dynaford. Like that, that's like what an insanely big lead role to get yeah. in a movie that I guess maybe when they were making it felt like a little indie. I mean, they they shot... I was told they shot in Eastern Europe entirely, except one day of exteriors in New York City. Um, <laughs> but it really felt like it was in New York. So, I mean, but like you're, you're in Eastern Europe, you're, you're with this TV director who's making her debut feature film. It probably didn't feel um, as seismic as it did once it arrived at Sundance, which is exactly like you said, Rebecca, kind of what you hope from Sundance. Um, did you, either of you see any other kind of big breakouts um, in your viewing? Well, if we're talking female directors, should we talk about... Um you hurt my feelings because oh, yes, of course. Let's I, please. I think that was my favorite thing that I me too. Saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shocker. This is the Nicole Holof Center film that uh, stars Julie Louis Dreyfus, and it's just the performance she gives is just so incredible. But it's also the overall story. It's just sort of like privileged uh, couple and their sort of issues. She's in a, she's a writer and is struggling to finish this book and her husband is telling her he loves it and it goes from there. But it's just the way she captures the dynamics between couples is just like she might as well be standing in my living room. I don't know how she does this, but <laughs> yeah. she, it's just it feels so real and so authentic and she's just incredible. Yeah. Having read my... Um husband's graduate manuscript over the past six months over and over the movie really <laughs> close to home. well now david uh, do you like it <laughs> i love it <laughs> uh no hurt feelings here um no i'm I- even beyond a very specific kind of resonance in that vein it's it's so specifically realized in the way that all of her movies are um but it also to me, had this really strong thematic through line. Um, She always, or at least very much of late, kind of starts with this turning point, this incident. Uh, In her last movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Enough Said, it was uh, the main character's discovery that her new best friend uh, is also the ex-wife of the man she's dating. It was the late James Gandolfini. Um, And in this one, it is when she overhears her husband um, saying something about her work. Uh, that does not comport with what he has said to her face. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that, she finds what I found to be quite quite a profound, complicated, and in the end, beautifully unresolved exploration of what we need from each other and what love looks like and what tough love looks like uh, and how those things contrast. Um, And I was... I, just, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. Her movies are so such breezy watches and so lovely and funny and true, but they they stick with you. And this, to me, was among the very best of her work. She really has that knack for yeah. You're watching this breezy, fun thing, and at the end, there's this like poignance that that sneaks up on you, and you're like, oh wait, like mm-hmm. we actually have been thinking and feeling some bigger things here. Um, and in this case, like you said, David, it's about like what kind of encouragement to a loved one is valuable and what's maybe harmful. I mean, I think that really comes out in a scene between Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Tobias Menzies, and Owen Teague, who plays their son, 
who's like 20 something, early 20s. And he's basically like, why did you tell me to be on the swim team? I was bad at swimming. And she's like, because I, I, you know, I wanted you to feel good about your swimming or whatever. And, and um, I think that the way that she explores this kind of ineffable matter of like human connection um, in a tangible, accessible, uh, funny way is really like, there's so much craft to what she's doing, but you don't really see the seams of it because she's such a, she has such a gentle hand as a filmmaker. And I think a big part of that in both Enough Said and Now This is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who um, my takeaway when I wrote a review of this movie from here was basically like, why don't we have like 30 years worth of Julia Louis-Dreyfus movies? <laughs> like, why isn't she in a James L. Brooks movie? She why isn't she in... TV too much. <laughs> I know. And, and, and I, I did... She won too many wrote, Emmys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after I wrote that, I, I did read an interview with her where she... Um, or watched an interview with her where she said that like, she really does genuinely love making television. And, um, you know, she's also really devoted to her kids. And there were always matters of like, I can't be away for this many months because my son is about to go to high school or to college or whatever. And so uh, life seems to have intervened there. But like, I hope now that her kids are grown. She's got this momentum. She's in the Marvel verse. She's got a couple movies coming up in, that are already filmed, one for A24 and one that this uh, Jonah Hill movie that's uh, coming out really soon. I I, th- I hope that we have like an era of the Julia Dreyfus movie star, you know, because she's so good. Uh, in this movie and really in anything else that she's done recently. Um, and I, I, you know, I found myself debating with a friend here, like, is there any sort of awards campaign for her in this? Is yeah. the movie too small? Is it too funny? Is it too whatever? Um, I don't know. I think she's beloved in the industry. And depending on when A24, which has this, which is an interesting home for a Hollow Center film, when when they release it, um, it could be. When Jerry Seinfeld tweets out that it's a small film with a giant heart, I think <laughs> we'll know that the campaign <laughs> yeah, is starting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. This was one movie of many that I, I realized almost in the midst of you know being in this festival that you had a lot of Sundance kind of icons coming back this year in their first big in-person return. In addition to her, you had John Carney, uh, who Sing Street was there. He brought, came back with Flora and Son. Uh, you had Iris Sachs, who's brought, I think, five features there now with Passages. I'm curious if you guys saw either of those and and what you thought, because it did feel like you had these breakouts on the one end, and then on the other, people like Holoff Center and Sachs coming back, which was interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, the John Carney movie was another big sale, I believe, to Apple, right? Yeah. Um, and I was in the room for that premiere, and it was, as you would predict, everyone was very invested, lots of clapping and cheering at the end. Um, I think it's a it's a less accessible movie in some ways than Sing Street was, or what even once was, um, because it has this kind of whimsy to it, and yet it's also kind of scrappy and has a lot of foul language and whatever, you know. But it, it it works, you know. The music is nice. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is very, you know, ruggedly handsome as this online guitar teacher to uh, a Dublin woman played by Eve Hewson, perhaps the nepo baby of them all, <laughs> but who I think you know has done really good, you know, acting work um, in recent years. Uh, she was just on Bad Sisters, and now she's in this. And she's really good in it, like good in a way that I didn't think that she had in her, um, and uh, she really carries this movie on her shoulders uh, for the whole run of it. And um, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's a kind of star turn in a way. This is only, I think her first lead in a, in a film at this point. Um, and she, she just walks away with it. Yeah. She played Julie Louis-Dreyfus's daughter in Enough Said, Nicole Austin's right. yeah. last collaboration with her. Uh, and I thought she was good in that too. Uh, 
Richard, since you saw a lot more than we did, I assume, um, is there anything else that really surprised you about how wonderful it was in the end? Well, I did like Passages, which David mentioned, the Iris Axe film about um, a couple living in Paris, Ben Wishaw, Franz Rogowski, and then Franz Rogowski's character decides to go sleep with a woman, played by Adele Exarchopoulos from Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, and so it's this, it, what you think is going to be a relationship dramedy-ish thing actually becomes this fascinating character study of a narcissist who, played by Franz <laughs> Rogowski, who's a film director. Um, so Iris X is kind of, I think, examining people in his own immediate sphere of work um, in, a, in an interesting way. There is a very long sex scene between Ben Wishaw and Franz Rogowski that is in some sense, it's pretty graphic that mm-hmm. uh, I think we'll have people chattering. That was bought by Mubi, um, which is an interesting thing for international distribution. Um, uh, yeah, so that was interesting. Another gay film here was uh, Cassandra with Gail Garcia Bernal, uh, where it's it's a biopic about a real life lucha libre wrestler who, you know, he his his character was one of the, one of the characters called Exoticos, which are sort of men in drag doing the wrestling, and they are always meant to lose to to the more mask person they're wrestling with. Um, but in, in Cassandra's case, he, he actually became a, a star in, in, in himself and, and, uh, he's played really beautifully by Bernal, um, yeah. very nuanced performance. You know, I don't like a biopic typically, but this one has, um, a restraint to it and a sort of modesty to it where, um, it doesn't feel like it's kind of telegraphing its awards intentions at you or anything. It really is just this kind of humble, appreciative, loving uh, look at this man and his life and um, his weird career. Um, and Bernal really gets in on that wavelength very well. He's not good giving an outsized performance at all. It's sexy. It's funny. It's, it's, it's moving in, in parts. Um, so yeah, I was really impressed by that. I thought he was really lovely in it. Um, of those three, of, of these three movies where you have, I think friends Rogowski is really next level in passages. He's so good. And we talked about Jonathan majors, uh, Cassandra was the third, you know, really strong lead male performance that I saw. Um, of those three movies, it has the most familiar shape, um, but he still finds something really subtle and interesting. And again, it, it honestly just it felt like you could fill more than half of a Best Actor lineup, quite a strong one, with those three guys alone. They were all so good. Um, and I, I feel like that movie, um, just because of how good he is and I th- think how – Little we've gotten to see that, you know, on that scale from him, um, could get so, could have a good life. I think it's an Amazon movie. Yeah, it is Amazon, and like, yeah, he's just such a singular actor. He has such a, a particular bearing to him that I find really appealing. So I hope that Amazon treats that movie well. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about imaginary Oscar ballots, I think we also have to mention that I would, at the moment, in supporting actress, put Anne Hathaway in there mm, <laughs> uh, for mm-hmm. Eileen. Uh, a movie from William Oldroyd, uh, who did Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh a few years ago, um, based on the Otessa Moshveg novel. I didn't love the movie, to be honest. I, I felt that it was a little bit of a kind of like provocative joke that then just abruptly ends. But I thought that Hathaway playing this mysterious psychiatrist who moves to small town Massachusetts in the early 1960s um, and attracts the attention of Thomas and Mackenzie's titular character, uh, I think Hathaway's great because it's a perfect mix of like genuine kind of grit, but also a sort of theatrical um, put on, you know, personality in a way that I think suits Hathaway's particular skills really well. Um, She's sexy in it. She's funny in it. She's dark and mysterious in it. um, And I I really liked her in it. What what did either of you think of Eileen? 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's the perfect role for her. I really liked Thomasin McKenzie in it. I mean, I think everything I see her in, she's so good at seeming so meek and so quiet in the beginning. And then she just like unravels as she goes along. And I forget that she's not like 10 years old, but it's yeah. just like, it's a it's a, also a really strong performance. And she's just been sort of building performance after performance, you know, s- since she started. So I, I, I enjoyed it as a, a, as a way to watch strong performances, but I agree. I think the story had some issues that I, I didn't love, especially the second half. I am T. Mylene. I will stay on T. Mylene. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love William Oldroy and I, I love the book. And I felt like that was a, it was a really stylish and yeah, I mean, I like the provocations um, of the movie. Uh, I'm still wrapping my head around the last act um, and the way that they did it, but you know, it gives Marin Ireland one yeah. probably the best one scene performance that I've seen at Sundance. Um, and I know she's also great in Birth and Rebirth, uh, which I have not seen, but I've heard great things. Yeah, it's it feels like for Anne Hathaway, this is the kind of role that was a little overdue for her. Whether that is the industry not you know. You know, giving that to her or her seeking that out, it's very well timed, and it does. Um, I thought you put it really well in your review, Richard. Kind of introduce maybe a new chapter for her that uh, people who have loved her have been waiting for. Yeah, I'm I'm all about Eileen. I I'm very curious to who's going to pick that movie up and what that release yeah. is going to look like. It's very deliberately polarizing, and leaves you in a place that is to some degree unsatisfying. So it's it. it, it it will have it will have an interesting life, whatever it is. Um, but that one's also still for sale. I think whoever owns Akbar in you know the east side of Los Angeles should just buy it and play it there, <laughs> and people can go to Akbar and watch Eileen and have a drink or two. You know, it's, it's, yep. it's just like a very the like, ideal setting. <laughs> yeah, it's a very like niche cult cult kind of fandom. I think that movie's going to have. Um, Marin Ireland is insane in it. Like that scene is wild, and the monologue is so grim and horrifying. Um, but delivered with utter commitment by Ireland who yeah, between that and birth rebirth had a, had a very good Sundance. Um, and I would say as we wrap things up that it was overall a pretty good Sundance. I went in trepidatious because I didn't see the big marquee things on the, on the lineup. And then it turns out there was stuff added like past lives that, that really, um, you know, kind of blew me away. But, um, the stuff that saw that felt smaller to me on the page when actually watching it felt pretty substantial and exciting. Um, did you both feel like this was a, a good year for Sundance? Does it augur good things for the movies uh, of 2023? It feels like there's a little more energy around it than there has been in the last few years, which is a really good sign. And the market so far has appeared pretty healthy from a distance. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really strong Sundance. Um, there were a lot of movies that kept rattling around for me. There were really, really sensational performances that deserve to be talked about all year. I haven't even seen what I am pretty confident is the best narrative feature of the festival. So me having this feeling without even having seen that, I think speaks um, pretty highly to the fact that they were able to come back. I also wonder about, you know, seeing how this award season has turned out. uh, The fact that a lot of late in the year releases didn't pan out. The fact that everything everywhere all at once was such an early in the year premiere, like distributors think smartly about a lot of these titles and performances. Um, they can have the kind of life that they deserve. Yeah, yeah. And they don't have to hold them to November. Exactly. Are you glad you went in person, Richard? Did it feel good to be back? 
Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I think I am. You know, not just because I got to see past lives, which um, We're very was not available of, online. Yes. Um, but I think it really, Sundance, as much as I roll my eyes at the audience sometimes, and let me tell you, there were some really rude, rich people here this year. <laughs> I saw some really bad behavior, bad behavior directed at me. <laughs> like it was, oh, it man. was, that, that was a bit of a, th- I think everyone's a little feral, you know, after a couple of years away and the festival had some kinks to iron out as well, um, both online and off. And, um, but no, I think all in all told, like it was great to be back in a space where, the audience has felt really enthusiastic, engaged. That's also true at other film festivals like Cannes and Venice and Toronto that I've been to um, since you know the pandemic started. But but Sundance is a unique beast um, in that in that it's it's a lot of discoveries and um, and really relies on that groundswell of momentum. Um, and yeah, so I'm happy that I was a part of that and and was here. Um, did I also then sometimes skip a screening and just watch it on my computer the next day in my little Airbnb? Yes, I did. <laughs> I'll be honest. Sorry, Theater Camp, uh, which I didn't really like, but um, and even though I'm the target audience for that movie. But yeah, I think it was good and it makes me excited about movies. And I was, you know, also on the business side of things. It does seem, seem like things are selling, which means that the people who can see the future business wise are like, no, 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 it's still worth it to buy movies, which is good for all of us. Indeed. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Tuesday with an interview episode and then on Thursday with a roundtable back to our normal schedule. Uh, In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, uh, Richard's at Rylaws, Rebecca's at Becca M4, David's at David Canfield 97. I'm at Katie Rich and our guest Joe Reed. Where can people find you? Uh, If you want to find me, I'm at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D, on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. Our podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, can be found on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. We're also now on Instagram at this had Oscar buzz or just find us on your preferred podcast platform and give us a listen. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. 